morning and welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to everybody who's joining us online uh, on our online campus. I want to have a big shout out to our microsite and uh, man, just great to be here this morning. And I got to tell you, it's awesome to have uh, so many kids at Shamina this weekend uh, at camp for this weekend retreat. Uh, over 100 uh, students and leaders are there. And this is what's really cool. Uh, Chandler, our youth pastor ahead of time, said that if we could hit a certain amount, a certain goal of kids going, that he would actually cut his hair into a mullet. And so they hit the goal. And so last Wednesday, uh, during youth service, he was on stage having his hair cut into a mullet. And I just thought we should show you a picture of that because I think it's really important that you see this. It's beautiful, right? So beautiful. And uh, that's very much business in the front and party in the back. And afterwards, I realized that he had to create some story because he just really wanted a mullet. And so he created this whole thing of like, oh, if you guys get a certain number of kids to camp. And he set the number so low, he knew you were going to hit it because he just really wanted a mullet and wanted to justify it. So uh, he'll probably be wearing that mullet for a while. So if you guys see him around, make sure and give him a nice uh, high five and, uh, you know, cheer on his favorite NASCAR team. I don't know. So it'll be great. But uh, hey, we're in week two of a series, uh, or sorry, week three of a series called Identity, and uh, we're walking together through this letter that the Apostle Peter writes to followers of Jesus in the first century. And uh, I've got, uh, I got to tell you, I was at a wedding on Friday night, and uh, after the wedding, uh, I officiated a wedding, and then we were at the reception, and the music was so loud that I found myself shouting, talking in the sort of the back of the reception, and I woke up yesterday with the most hoarse voice ever, and I love it. It's like radio-friendly voice. So hang in here with me. Uh, I'm feeling great. It's just a hoarse voice from shouting at a wedding. But uh, we're, we're uh, walking through this letter that Peter wrote to followers of Jesus scattered across the Roman Empire, particularly the northern provinces of Europe. He's writing to this group of people, and it's about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing to them to encourage them because they're going through uh, the midst of an incredibly difficult season. It's very hostile towards Christians. The Roman Empire is persecuting Christians, and those those who are following Jesus, just by following Jesus, are being arrested, they're being tortured, they're being put to death, and Peter is writing them to encourage them to continue to live like Jesus, even in a hostile world, because their lives are making a difference. And that he's reminding them that they are citizens of heaven, that, that this is not where they, uh, where they find their security and find their identity. And so today we're going to jump into chapter two, and I want to begin with a big question. Wh who do you think you are? How do you see yourself? Not like how your spouse would say it, but when you think about yourself, what kind of words or what sentences would you use to identify yourself? What would be the things that you would use? Would it be your interests? Like, hey, I, uh, I love basketball or I love crafting or, uh, hey, I'm in CrossFit. <laughs> we know you're in CrossFit. Okay, we got it. Uh, would it be your career? Maybe you're like, well, I'm an accountant, or, uh, you know, I drive truck, or uh, I'm a CrossFit coach. Oh, my gosh, we know. Or, or maybe you'd say, uh, we're a Disney family, or we're a Republican family, or we're a Democrat family, or we're a hockey family. Or, you know, what, what are the things that you would use to describe yourself? And I don't know what words you may use to describe yourself, but my guess is the way that you see you isn't even close to the way that God sees you. That would be my guess. And if you're anything like me, my guess is that your view of yourself is probably way less 
than God's view of you. That you don't see yourself the way that God sees you. And Peter's trying to remind us throughout this letter over and over and over again that we have this incredible identity. That who we are and who we belong to is our identity. And I would argue our understanding of our identity is maybe, maybe the single most important thing that we can do to navigate the complexities of life and the human heart. Understanding who we are and understanding who we belong to makes a big difference in how we live our lives. It makes a difference in how we do marriage and how we do parenting and, and how we uh, live in our career and how we handle our finances. When we understand who we are and who we belong to, it changes everything about how we live. Because when our identity is secure, the rest of our life tends to follow suit. And so through this first chapter that we looked at over the last couple of weeks, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1, and God is using the apostle Peter to help us understand how much he loves us, to help us understand how God sees us. And God is using Peter to remind us and to help us understand our identity and to get it into our hearts and our minds that we are loved. And so what we discovered through these first two weeks, Peter kind of repeats himself a lot through these first two weeks. He says, First, God changes your belonging, and then as a result of that, we change our behavior. First, God changes us with his grace, and then we lean into truth and we respond in obedience to the ways of Jesus. My identity is established by God, and as a result of that, it affects my choices. And so what we've said through these first two weeks is that your behavior, what you've done in the past, doesn't determine your identity, who you are. But when you discover who you are, it ought to determine your behavior. And so as we dive into chapter 2 of this letter today... Peter starts by describing what that change in behavior will look like. So we're going to jump into chapter 2 together. We're going to go through the first 12 verses together today, and we're going to unpack that together, and we're going to discover four things that come out of these verses. And the first one is this. What you feed yourself is what you will crave. What you feed yourself is what you will crave. So Peter begins this next section of this letter uh, having just described this idea of what it means to pursue holiness. We talked about that last week, that it means just becoming like Jesus, That's what that's all about, and that we are to become like Jesus. And he says, in becoming like Jesus, that we learn to love well. Because spiritual maturity is not about trying to make a point. Spiritual maturity is actually about making a difference. And so he begins this next section, chapter 2, and here's what he says. He says, so get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Cry out now that you've had a taste, now that you can see and and tasted the goodness of God. Have you ever tasted something that you thought was absolutely amazing? And then as you grew, you realized it didn't taste as good as you once thought that it did? Or have you ever had somebody describe something to you and they're like, you got to try this. And they talk it up so much and then you taste it and you're like, eh. Like this happens a lot. Uh, I've been to California several times. And anytime I go to California, people are like, oh man, you got to try In-N-Out Burger. Have you ever been to In-N-Out Burger? We don't have In-N-Out Burger here. You got to go to In-N-Out Burger. And and, and I'm like, okay, it must be amazing, right? And I go to In-N-Out Burger. And if you've ever been to In-N-Out Burger, it's like the love child of McDonald's and Burger King. You know, it's just like. What is this? Like, do you know I've had Culver's, right? It's a, like, it does not stack up to the Butterburger, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying. But people are like, oh, In-N-Out, it's amazing. You've got to try In-N-Out Burger. It's the quintessential. I'm like, this is McDonald's. That's all this is. This is that's, that's what In-N-Out Burger is, right? And, and I don't get it. 
And it's just one of these things where people talk it up, talk it up. And then for me, and I don't know, maybe you're like a huge In-N-Out Burger fan and I have just majorly stepped on your toes. But uh, I'm like, man, I don't get it. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. Uh, many of you have known, uh, and I, I'm not super public with this, but over the last year or so, I, I've been on a weight loss journey. I've lost about 70 pounds over the last uh, year and a half. And uh, so some of you, you just met me, you're just like, no way. Uh, but yeah, no, seriously. But here, I, I don't say that to toot my own horn. I say that because one of the things I learned is that I had an unhealthy relationship towards food. And I, I discovered that when I was bored, I went to the pantry. I discovered that uh, when I had a bad day, I would medicate with food. I discovered that when I had a good day, I would celebrate with food. I just realized food seems to be at the center of a lot of stuff I do. And so I turned 40 last year, and I said, okay, I'm going to change this. And I started to view food differently, and I started to change what I used to fuel my body. And it's amazing the cravings that I had for food went away. Because as I fueled my body differently, my body craved different things. And this is the same way with our spiritual journey. Peter says, without even realizing it, we have developed a taste, a craving for the wrong things. We like the taste of feeding our own preferences. We like the taste of feeding our own desires. We like how that feels. And maybe we haven't stopped to realize that God actually has better things. That maybe by, by living by the design of the one who created us, we could actually live a more satisfying, more fulfilling, better tasting life than living life our own way on our own terms. And so Peter says, look, first, you gotta, you got to give your body different things. you got to give spiritually. you got to crave the right things. And now that you've had a taste of God's kindness, now that you have a, a taste of the goodness of God, don't go back to these other cravings. Crave pure spiritual milk. Crave the thing that will give you life and satisfaction. And that's all about the part that we play to follow Jesus. And here's why this really matters. We discover in these next few verses this second important truth from 1 Peter. He says, our response to Jesus really determines our future. How we respond to this, God's grace is given to us, but how we respond to God's grace determines our future. It's important to understand that Jesus has done his part. His work has already been done, and now it is our response to Jesus and to his message that really determines our lives here in this world and our future in eternity. And these next verses Peter writes speak to this dynamic, and he uses powerful imagery to make this point. He says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Now, real quickly, a cornerstone is what they would use. It would be the first stone that they would set, and then they would square off the rest of the building based off of that, and that would be the stone around which the entire building would get built. And so Peter says, Jesus is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests, we're going to come back to that in a minute. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So there's a lot going on here. So here's what Peter's saying. In the temple in Jerusalem, you had multiple different levels that were for multiple different groups of people. You had something called the court of the Gentiles. That's where if you weren't Jewish, you could go this far towards the temple and you could go no further. And then if you were Jewish, they had another court called the court of the Israelites. And if you were Jewish, you could go there, but no further. And then if you were a Levite, a temple worker, a priest, then you could actually go into what was called the holy place. 
And in there, the priests would go, and weekly, they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. There would be a special bread that they would eat, and they would, they would offer burnt offerings, and they would say, uh, God, this, is, uh, this incense, may it be pleasing to you. And it's just kind of this uh, ritual and tradition. And then inside of that, there was something called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, only a priest could go into that place, and the priest could only go in once a year, only on the Day of Atonement, a special day. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. Now, if you're like, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Think Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's what he's searching for, and it's got the wings on it, and the lid comes off, and the Nazis' faces melt off, right? So that's the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, the actual stone tablets that, uh, upon which God gave the Ten Commandments. And this is sitting inside of this Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And it's where God's presence dwelt. And so the priest would go in once a year to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and come back. And, and he would then come back and say, yes, God's accepted the sacrifice. And that meant we're good for another year. So think about this. It, it, it was this most holy place, priests were only allowed in, and between the most holy place and the rest of the temple and the outer courts and all those things, there was this, this massive curtain, and it separated that to make sure that no one would go behind it. This is a, a temple in, in Jesus' day was 60 feet high, and that curtain was about three feet thick. And multiple eyewitness accounts tell us that when Jesus was put to death, the day that Jesus was nailed to the cross, the, the moment that he said, it is finished, and, and he died, which means all is paid, it's as if in that moment, the multiple eyewitness accounts tell us that that curtain ripped in half from top to bottom. There was this earthquake, and everything changed, and that curtain that separated, that place where only the priest could go, now it tore right down the top, from top to bottom, completely split in half. And it's as if when Jesus said, it is finished, paid in full, it's as if God was sending a message to the world. Hey, no longer is my presence available to one man on a certain day, but now my presence is available to all people at all times. And now we offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus. Paul, Paul writes this in, in Hebrews 12. He says, your, make your body a living sacrifice. In other words, we say, God, everything I have belongs to you. I'm a, I'm a living, breathing, walking sacrifice to you. We give him ourselves. We say, I belong to you. And so we build our lives around the way of Jesus. And so Peter continues. He says, as the scriptures say, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. So here's what Peter's saying. That same stone, embraced by some and rejected by others, serves different purposes. Jesus either can become this incredible foundation that your life is built on, or he becomes something that you continually stumble over. It's a cornerstone on which God is some, building something beautiful, or it's a stumbling block that we tend to trip over. But here's what's important to know. It's not God who causes one to be built up and one to stumble. It's us. It's our response to the message of Jesus. And so the same sun melts wax and hardens clay. It's the same sun. 
but it does different things based on different, uh, they both react differently. And when people stumble, it's because they haven't obeyed the message of Jesus. It's because they haven't leaned in to say, okay, Jesus, your way is best. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop craving the things that I, I feel like bring me satisfaction in this life, and instead I'm going to crave the things that you want for my life, that you designed me for, that I think will actually satisfy. And Peter's saying, look, when we don't do that, then we stumble. This, this foundation of Jesus upon which we're meant to build our life actually becomes something we stumble over. And I can imagine Peter thinking back to the stories that Jesus had told. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 7, and he's, he's giving this really kind of famous sermon, and he wraps it up, and he says there was someone who built their house on the rock, and there was someone who built their house on sand. And when storms came, the house on sand fell with a mighty crash, but the house on the rock stand, stood firm. And Jesus said the only difference between those two people was the person who built their house on the rock was someone who heard my teachings and then obeyed them. And the person who built their house in the sand was someone who also heard my teachings but decided not to obey them. It was the only difference, was the person's response. And I can imagine Peter thinking about this as he's writing this. The difference wasn't the house. The difference wasn't the storms. It was the foundation upon which they were building their lives. And Jesus said that the man on the rock was someone who obeyed and the man on the sand was someone who didn't. And the only difference, again, is how we choose to respond. And Peter is saying the same thing. You can either make Jesus the cornerstone upon which you build your life, or he will always be a stumbling block that you are tripping over because he's pursuing you. He wants relationship with you. It's as if Peter is using multiple metaphors to really drive home his point. He's saying, look, you've got to build your life with the right kind of spiritual nutrition. You, you, you've got to build your spiritual life on the right foundation. And perhaps, perhaps you found yourself in a season where you recognize you've developed an appetite for the wrong things. Perhaps you find yourself in a season where you find yourself tripping over the way of Jesus because you don't want to make him the Lord of your life. You, you want to worship him with words, but your life isn't actually aligned around the things of Jesus. And he has now become a stumbling block that you're tripping over. And rather than obey, he just keeps getting in the way. And it's possible that God is using the words of Peter to wake you up to that reality and to start you down a new path. But your response matters. Peter says Jesus is either going to be this cornerstone upon which you build your life or he will be something that you continually trip over. And how we respond impacts our future. And then we learn this. Coming back to what is something he said, he says, every follower of Jesus is now a priest. Okay, well, what does that mean? I'm a, like, I'm now a priest. Like, people can come to me for a confession now. I don't know, sure, I really want that responsibility. Uh, as Peter continues writing, he's thinking about the fact we are living stones, right, that God is building into his spiritual temple. He's, he's thinking about this metaphor, and, and he, he takes it a step further. And this really helps us understand the freedom that we have with Jesus and our relationship with Jesus and the incredible privileges that are ours as a part of God's family and the incredible responsibilities that are ours as a part of God's family. Listen to what he writes in these next verses. He's talking about people that stumble over, this, over Jesus. He says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, 
and now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. Peter is writing mainly to Gentile people at this point it's, it, who have become followers of Jesus. And he's writing to them that they are a chosen people, which is very interesting because for Peter, he would have said, no, Jewish people are God's chosen people. That's what they were taught. And now he's writing to Gentile people, non-Jewish people, and he's saying, you've been chosen. You are God's chosen people. And the nation of Israel should have been God's chosen people. That's what they were taught growing up. And we discover in Acts chapter 10 that Peter didn't even step foot in the house of a Gentile until about 10 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he goes to the house of a guy named Cornelius. And then in Acts chapter 15, Peter is the one arguing on behalf of Gentiles, saying they shouldn't have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus. And so he's, God's done this transformation in Peter's heart and in his life and how he views people. And now he says to Gentiles, you are God's chosen people. You're God's chosen people. So here he is writing to them. He says, when that curtain was torn apart, when that curtain tore from top to bottom, all of the barriers that kept you away from God were torn apart with it. He says, you're royal priests. Now think about that. When we step across the line of faith and Jesus forgives our sins and God's spirit begins to do a work in our lives, we are royalty because we have become part of the family of the king. And we, are gain, we gain the rights of priests with full access to God. Now this is very important for us as followers of Jesus to understand their privileges and responsibilities along with that. And this section of verses points to this idea or, or a, uh, a, a doctrine that finds itself throughout the New Testament. Uh, and it's not a, a phrase we use a lot, but it's the priesthood of all believers. Okay, what does that mean, the priesthood of all believers? We're going to walk through that. When we think about priests, we tend to think about uh, Roman Catholic priests, we tend to think about them in a certain way in terms of like, here's the practices and here's what they do. But in the Old Testament, a priest in that tradition was primarily a mediator. Now here's what that means. A mediator stands between two parties who are at odds and helps them communicate with each other and tries to help them come to some kind of an agreement. So the mediator in the Old Testament, the priests were the mediator between God and people. And the people would come to the priests and they would bring their bull or they'd bring their goat and they'd ask the priest to sacrifice on their behalf. And then the priest would do that. And then the priest would bring back to the people assurance of God's forgiveness. And then the priest would also represent what God wanted. And so this was before the days of the printing press, right? So if you didn't, if you didn't have a priest, you didn't have anyone who could explain the scriptures to you. And so the priests would explain the scriptures to people, and they were the spiritual teachers. And if they ever wanted to know what God thought, they didn't get it from God. They got it from the priests. And some of you, maybe you grew up in a Catholic tradition, and you may even be old enough to remember when all of the Mass was in Latin. Up until Vatican II closed in 1865, the Mass was in Latin, and you weren't supposed to read it for yourself. The priest was supposed to tell you this is what it means. Others of you might come from a... a, a different tradition, and it was, uh, hey, I grew up, you know, strict Baptist or strict Lutheran, and it was just, hey, the pastor tells us. The pastor tells us what to do, and, and if I disagree with it, they're the pastor, and I just nod my head and go, yep, they're the pastor. That's what they said, so. And uh, they're different traditions, but the same thing. And, and some of you, even here at Westbridge, sometimes have that same mindset. Well, Pastor Jeremiah said, Pastor Jeremiah said, and rather than here's what the scriptures say. It's not all that different from Catholic or old school, traditional Baptist or Lutheran or Westbridge Church, all part of God's family, all doing our best, but all susceptible to the same trap. And we look for a mediator. 
which was needed back then, but we don't need now. The curtain's been torn apart. And now that we've come to God, we don't need a mediator because he's our heavenly father. And so we've got some privileges that are now yours. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have these incredible privileges. One is this. You have full access to God. You have full access to God. You don't need anybody to go be the go-between for you and God. And there are a couple of myths that sort of uh, we need to dispel that tend to arise in Christian circles. They're the holy man myth and the holy place myth. And here's the holy man myth is uh, where we confuse someone's giftedness or someone's leadership and their role, and we let them stand between us and God. Well, if I want to know what God says, then I better talk to a pastor. I better talk to the priest. That's a holy man myth. Then there's the holy place myth, which says uh, God's presence lives here at church, but not other places. If I want to be in God's presence, I go to church, which is why you can tell a joke at work that you would never tell at church, because God's presence is here, but not there. And I got news for you. God's presence is here, and he's there too. And when you have a holy place myth, then what you end up with is a stupid God because he knows what goes on here, but he doesn't know what goes on outside of these walls. And when you have a holy man myth, you end up taking the power that God has given you to live each and every day in full relationship with God, and you hand over that power to someone else. And they do have that power in their lives, but they do not have exclusive rights to it. That's been given to you. You are a royal priest And so you have direct access to God. That's why being a part of a small group here at Westbridge is so incredibly important and powerful for your life. It destroys the holy man myth, and it destroys the holy place myth. See, here's what this looks like. Anytime I'm out somewhere and I'm with a group of people, and maybe we're out to dinner or we're having dinner at someone's house, what do they ask me to do? Pray. Like, oh, Pastor Jeremiah, would you pray before the meal? Now, if I'm not there, what happens? They just eat. No, they probably have someone else pray, right? Because they can. Someone else can pray. But for some reason, it's this weird dynamic of like, oh, Jeremiah's here. We better have the pastor pray for the meal. And that's why groups are so powerful because it teaches us and it reminds us every single week, there's not a holy man. There's not a holy place. It's each and every one of you. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's chosen possession ministering to each other. You have full access to God, encouraging each other, praying for each other, counseling each other, uh, laying hands on each other. That's the only way the church works is when each one of us re- uh, you know, understands I have a role to play. And I don't have to have the holy man and a holy place in order to have access to God. You have full access to God. Here's a couple of thoughts about this. Uh, first, you don't need a mediator. In fact, scriptures tell us that Jesus became our priest and he is the only mediator that we need between us and God. That Jesus is praying on our behalf. He is our mediator. Here's another thought. Because of Jesus, we can approach God with bold confidence. Again, the scriptures tell us in Hebrews to approach boldly because it's a throne of grace and mercy. And grace means I have unmerited favor, so I don't have to earn it. And mercy means I don't get what I deserve, so I don't have to worry about it. I can come to God as I am. And sometimes we think we have to approach God so carefully, so gingerly. And there's a certain formula to prayer and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, and, and I know it's meant to be helpful, but when I was growing up, I was taught, well, whenever you pray, you've got to use this acronym. It's called JOY, J-O-Y, Jesus, and then others, and then you. 
So I'd be like, okay, Jesus, others, and me. So I'd spend time buttering God up and telling him how great he is, you know. And then I'd pray for other people, and then I'd finally get to the stuff I really wanted to talk about, which was my stuff. And it's, it's just fascinating. And, and uh, you know, spend time telling God how good he is, pray for other people, and, and then God, you know, you know, if I could get around to it, here's some of my stuff that I'm worried about too, as if he didn't know. But when my kids come and ask me for things, they're never like, okay, Oh, Father, you are a good Father. Let me just tell you how good you are. Man, you're great. Oh, I love the Cheerios that you provide in the mornings. It's fantastic. And uh, Oh, and also, uh, I want to pray for my siblings. If you could just, you know, if you could get stuff for my siblings before, I'm just thinking about them. And, uh, oh, by the way, I mean, <laughs> some stuff I want to, but, you know, if you get around to it, I'd be much obliged. Never had that conversation with my kids, ever. You know what they do? They just blurt it out. Relentlessly. And we can approach God boldly. Because it's grace and mercy. And that boldness isn't because of who we are. It's because of what Jesus has done. There's no magic formula to prayer. Now, I would submit to you, at the same time, prayer isn't all about help me, bless me, protect me, God, me, me, me. Prayer is about becoming more like Jesus, but there's no magic formula. You have direct access to God. You don't have a go-between. You don't have a mediator. You can approach the throne of grace and mercy with boldness and sincerity. Third, we can confess our sins and move on. This is so fantastic. We don't need a mediator, and we don't have to offer a sacrifice and wait for someone to come back and tell us it's all good. The scriptures tell us that if we confess our sins, that God forgives See, you have direct access to God. You don't need a mediator. Here's the other thing. You have full access to the Bible. Think about this. That means you don't need a priest or a pastor to understand it. Well, what the heck are we doing here then? <laughs> Please hear me on this. This is not a call for us to go solo. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. We still operate collectively as the body of Christ. And as iron sharpens iron, we need each other. We help develop each other's gifts. We help collectively, as the body of Christ, serve our community and make a difference in our world. And so there are people with the gifts of leadership and teaching and helps and mercy, and we need all those gifts. But what we don't do is we don't set aside our own access to the scriptures because of those gifts. We don't abdicate our own ability to feed ourselves with the scriptures. If I never learn from others, if all I ever do is just read the Bible and say, God, teach me, and I don't ever read what other people are saying, or I don't ever listen to other people's messages, and I don't ever try to continue to have input from others, I'll probably go sideways pretty quickly because Christianity was never meant to be a solo act. At the same time, I should never abdicate my responsibility to feed myself and say someone else will do it all for me. It's both end. This is one of the biggest crimes of modern history is that we have Bibles everywhere. You have it on your phone. And yet, sadly, we don't read it very much. And we still let other people do it all for us. If you have a Bible written in your language and you have access to that, you have to understand what an incredible gift that is. Only less than 500 years ago, William Tyndale was put to death for translating the Bible into English. Now we have, we have them everywhere. We have, and if you don't have one, we have them for free right out there. You can grab one. See, it's an incredible gift. 
you are a royal priesthood. You have full access to the Bible. That doesn't mean you should stop being part of the body of Christ and just shut yourself in at home and read the Bible, but neither should you abdicate that responsibility only to others. God, God's Spirit wants to show you things as you explore these divinely inspired writings. Here's another thing. You can do anything a pastor can do. Yeah. Maybe that's not great for my job security, but I'm just telling you. You can do anything a pastor can do. You can teach. Uh, you can counsel people. You can serve communion. You can baptize people in water. You can lay hands on people and pray for them. Those are all things that you can do. We have this mindset that, oh, those are just things that pastors do. And we're just people in the church. But that's not found anywhere in the scriptures. Nowhere. Those are all man-made traditions, usually made by people in a leadership role that want to hold on to it and not give it away. In fact, this isn't on your outline, but the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. And their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. The goal of pastors is not to do the work of ministry. The goal of pastors, the mission, the, the job is to equip the church to do the work of ministry. That is what we're supposed to do. That speaks to the priesthood of all believers. That you have a role to play, that I have a role to play. In fact, a few years ago, uh, we had this mission statement that said, Westbridge Church exists to help people find and follow Jesus. And one day, about five years ago, we added the word people to the front of that mission statement. Because we realized this isn't Westbridge the institution helping people find and follow Jesus. You're Westbridge and I'm Westbridge. We are the church. And so we said Westbridge Church is people helping people find and follow Jesus. We never wanted it to be this institution. The church is you and me. I love this story from John Wimber. He's one of the founders of the Vineyard Church and the Vineyard Church movement, if you've ever heard of that. And he, he tells this story about a woman who came to him and complained because someone needed help. And she had gotten the person's contact information and, and exactly what they needed, and she sent it to the church. And, and then she called the church and was complaining. She said, the church didn't help out. How come the church isn't doing what the church is supposed to do? And John Wimber said, I'm so sorry. Man, I feel, I feel so bad. We failed. We messed up. Because we did have someone, and Jesus told us, man, we've got to take care of that. And we did have someone assigned to it, and they totally missed it. The problem is that person was you. And there should never be a statement, why didn't the church, if you're a part of the church? If you're a part of the church, then it's why didn't you? Because we're all a part of this. See how that changes everything? The church is not a holy place that we gather to listen to a holy man. The church is who we collectively are, and we gather together to encourage one another so that we can make a difference in the world. We have incredible privileges and incredible responsibilities. But Peter says, because of Jesus, when you build your life on Jesus, you're God's chosen people. You, you've become royal priests. That means you have full access to God, full access to the Bible, and you can do anything a pastor can do. Here's the final thing Peter says. We were rescued so we can represent. We were rescued so that we can represent. The fact is that when Jesus rescued us from our sins, he didn't only rescue us from something, he actually rescued us for something. It wasn't just to get us out of our sins, but it was so that we could take part in his mission in the world. And 
Peter started out this section of verses saying that we needed to stop some things because they didn't line up with our new identity as citizens of God's kingdom. And now he's wrapping up this section telling us what it does look like. He says, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. In other words, those cravings that you had for those things about yourself, when you get those things, you know intuitively that ultimately they are not healthy for you. They are not good for you. They're actually waging war against your souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This is fascinating because uh, when we tend to think of, uh, you know, the way that we write things today, it's kind of like point A and subpoints and point B and subpoints. But when Peter's writing, this style of writing, it's more circular. He's like, he, he has one theme and he just keeps coming back to it over and over and over again. And so week one, he says, your behavior doesn't, uh, you know, determine your identity, but your identity should determine your behavior. Week two, he's like, God has changed your belonging, so now you have to change your behaving. And then today, he says, stop doing things that don't line up with who you are. It's like the third time we've heard this. Deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, unkind speech, these are not who you are, so that is not how you should behave. It's the third time in the first two chapters. Here's what God has done, so here's who you are, so now live like it. Here's what God's done for you. Here's the ransom that God used to purchase your freedom and your citizenship in heaven. So now you're citizens of heaven, so live with that mindset and represent God's kingdom well in the land that you're now living. You are temporary residents. You are foreigners in this land. And here in these verses, he's reminding us again, you are temporary residents and foreigners in this world, so let your life reflect that. You were rescued to represent Jesus. You were rescued to be a reflection of God's love in the world. And in living life that way, you're going to stand out. It's going to be different. You're going to appear different. You're going to operate differently. But your life is going to make a difference. How will people know what the kingdom of heaven is like? They'll interact on a day-to-day basis with its citizens when they interact with you. And they will interact with, over time, they'll recognize that your behavior is representative of how this kingdom of heaven operates. So putting that all together, Peter says, so stop craving the wrong things that don't actually satisfy you in the end. you, You think they do, but they don't satisfy. In fact, if you're honest with yourself, they're actually waging war against your very soul. You, you've become more unhealthy spiritually as you live more and more for yourself. So stop craving those things. Start building your life on, feeding yourself the right things. Start nourishing your life and building your life on Jesus, the center of our faith. And then he says, you have the ability to do that because you're a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood. You have access to God. You're a chosen people. You're God's special possession. So now, let your life be a reflection of that to those around you. And as you live your life, let it point towards the reality of heaven. That's so encouraging. And it's challenging. And maybe if you found yourself again in this season of craving the wrong things or tripping over this cornerstone Because you realize, I haven't actually made Jesus the Lord of my life. He's a part of my life. But I haven't actually built my life around him. So now I keep tripping over him. Maybe God is using the words of Peter to call you back as full citizens of heaven. Maybe you recognize, you know what? I need to build my life around Jesus. And for some of you, maybe you'd even say this. I've I've never said yes to Jesus. And you need to know, you were actually created by God to exist in loving community with God and with others. 
And from the very first human beings, from every one of us, from the first human beings to every one of us today, at some point we said, God, thanks but no thanks. Just going to live life my own way. And as a result, it caused brokenness between us and God and us and each other. And we feel that. We sense that. And Peter is calling us back to recognize our identity, to recognize who we actually are and what we were created for and to uh, begin to build our lives around that. And so if you've never said yes to that invitation, here's what you need to know, that God sent Jesus into the world so that he could show us exactly what our identity is, so that he could show us how much God loves us. And in the ultimate expression of love, he allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb, and according to multiple eyewitness accounts, he rose from the dead. And he's invited you to be a part of his family. You have full access to God. You have full access to the scriptures. You have full access to these gifts and privileges of being a part of God's family. And if you've never said yes to that, I want to invite you to say yes by just agreeing with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you, and I thank you that you've never walked away from me. You continue to pursue me, and I want to say yes to your invitation to be a part of your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter, and help me to build my life around you, to follow your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us that we would choose to respond to the message of Jesus in a way that we build our life around you. That God, you would become the foundation upon which our life is built and not something that we continue to stumble over, but in our obedience that our lives would continue to reflect the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus, and that our lives would not make a point, but that our lives would make a difference as we point others to you. In Jesus' name, amen.